morning. It has been a great blessing to be with you. And uh, this morning we want to look at Matthew chapter 6, if you'll turn there. <laughs> chapter 5 is the kingdom morality. It deals with issues such as, well, it deals with the issues of anger, lust, honesty, or dishonesty, and uh, retaliation, and uh, hatred. Uh, so those are moral issues. Uh, this chapter, chapter 6, deals with Christian piety. It deals with the spiritual aspect of uh, our lives. Uh, it's interesting that once we have dealt with the moral sins, if we're not careful, the devil comes back with spiritual sins. Uh, and we'll be looking at uh, some of that problem this morning. Now, we're not going to be looking at the first part, which has to deal with alms directly. Uh, that'll be in this message. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about about fasting, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, the, the kingdom treasure. Michael Hillis was a 29-year-old pilot for American Eagle Airlines. At the controls of Flight 3379, as it descended toward the airport in Raleigh, North Carolina, it was Michael Hillis who was the pilot of that flight, 3379 American Eagle. Two minutes and four miles from the airport, the panel light, or a panel light, in the cockpit lit up. It was a signal. That light was a signal that the engine had quit. This plane had two engines and one had quit. He and the co-pilot focused on determining which engine it was, and they forgot about flying the plane. At 1,400 feet, the plane began to drop rapidly, and the pilot and co-pilot began to act immediately to correct the flight and save the plane and the passengers. But they were too late, and the plane smashed into a woods, and 15 of the 20 people in that small plane died, including the pilot and the co-pilot. In searching the rubble, it was determined that neither of the engines had failed. It was the pilot light that had failed. That is a tragedy, isn't it? It's a human tendency for us to focus on the immediate situation and forget life's real purpose. And that's what we want to look at in both messages this morning. Too many are like McDonald's founder Ray Kroc, who said this. Somebody asked him what he believed in. He said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. Then he added, when I get to the office, I reverse the order. And then it's McDonald's, my family, and God. In today's scripture, Jesus encourages us to put first things first, and that would be the major title of my message. So first of all, we want to look at securing perpetual reality, and secondly, in the uh, second part of this message, seeking permanent riches. So first of all, securing perpetual reality, if you're taking notes, and secondly, seeking permanent riches. So we want to look at verses 16 to 18. The human instinct is to seek reality by focusing on material, tangible things. <laughs> Covetousness uh, is the desire for a little more. That's literally what the word means. Discontent. The desire to have a little more. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller, who of course was a multimillionaire and owner of Standard Oil, uh, how much money he needs, and he said, just a little more. It's that desire, you know, you have a, a, a business that supplies your needs, but the desire is for more. You have a house that supplies your needs, but the desire is for a bigger house. Uh, it, it, it's just that desire that's never satisfied. It never comes to contentment, all right? <clears throat> a bigger house, a better car, more exotic food, just something a little more than what I've already experienced. That's what covetousness is. It's a tendency to indulge the flesh in a search for satisfaction. And it's an elusive pursuit. Uh, my most poignant memory about this is, uh, I, of course, am a music lover, and I grew up in the, before all of these wonderful um, uh, pieces of technology we have now that you can buy very cheaply at Walmart and get a really pretty good sound. Uh, back in the day, you had to spend quite a bit of money. You had to get yourself a good amplifier, you had to get yourself a good turntable, and you had to get yourself a good... Uh, set of speakers, and all of that was very expensive, and I was, of course, 
I remember walking into a friend's place that had a beautiful set, an expensive set, stereo, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I mean, that was just such beautiful music, such a beautiful sound, so big and so clear. And I wanted that. So I spent and saved out of my uh, uh, earnings as a poor school teacher, and uh, I managed to buy a new turntable that was decent. I just bought a used amplifier that was decent, and finally got some decent speakers. And I remember distinctly putting the record on and playing it. Oh, I was so excited. I finally had what I wanted. And I distinctly remember that a few weeks later, I was hoping for something better. <laughs> and, and I really did, I think, learn that lesson uh, because I, I learned forever after that that the anticipation is always, I, I think I can say always, more exciting than the actual reality. And that's how the devil just faces us and keeps us going and keeps us discontented. <clears throat> Jesus' teaching is just the opposite. Disciplined living instead of indulgence. And so we want to look just very briefly, we don't have much time to do this, we want to just briefly look at what he said about fasting. Let's read this in verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, notice he does not say if you fast. It's assumed that we will fast. When you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou may appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is the secret, and thy Father, which is the secret, shall reward thee openly. All right. What do we want the Father to see? Well, uh, let's learn a little bit from the Jews. The Jews were really involved in fasting. Uh, one of the main things they wanted the, God to see was repentance. All right? To the Jews, fasting was a sign of repentance. On the Day of Atonement, there was a compulsory fast. Samuel made the people fast because they had followed Baal, and their repentance fasting was part of the experience. After the Benjamites practically wiped, were wiped out by the other tribes, at the end of Judges, that awful massacre that you have, you have the people fasting to demonstrate their repentance. And Nehemiah made the people fast for their sins in Nehemiah 9, verse 1. In Jewish literature, we have some, in, 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 we have some further insight. Jewish literature says that Reuben, for his share in selling Joseph, was required for seven years to have no wine and no appetizing food. Simeon. And this is Jewish literature, this is not the Bible. Simeon, for selling Joseph, was required uh, for two years uh, to be fasting uh, from pleasant things. Judah, for the sin of uh, Tamar, was required unto his old age to have no wine, no flesh, and no pleasure. So these, these, I'm just giving you the Jewish mentality about fasting. So what is fasting uh, beyond repentance? Uh, it's a sign of repentance. It's also an invitation for God to speak to us. Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai before he received the law. Daniel fasted while he was waiting on a word from God about the end of the Jewish captivity. All right? So what happens in fasting? Well, uh, I'll speak a little bit from my own experience. Uh, the senses are heightened. Uh, I remember fasting with a group of teachers. Uh, we fasted for a week. And I remember as the week wore on, I just found myself wanting to pray, wanting to be with brothers and sisters in fellowship, wanting to study the Word. Uh, I, I just remember how my spiritual sensitivity was just tightened by that fast. All right? The flesh is disciplined and the spiritual senses are strengthened by fasting and grace flows freely during a good fast, okay? What are the benefits of fasting? Well, we're finding more and more as they do research, it's good for our health. Uh, doctors uh, advise people to fast. It enhances, enhances the enjoyment of common things. Uh, I think we all know that when we have to do without something, then we really appreciate it more. And uh, I said the other night, people are running from one restaurant to another for some more exotic food to, because their senses uh, have experienced the law of diminishing returns. The more you do something, the less you enjoy it. So, I mean, the common sense approach is 
well, do without. And I remember after that fast for a week, oh my, uh, just common food without any seasoning, which is delicious. And uh, that's what happens. And not only are the physical senses enhanced, but also the spiritual senses. Uh, our world is, is, is becoming more and more desensitized. I mean, more entertainment. It has to be more exciting. It has to be, food has to be more exciting. Everything has to be bigger and better because the senses are being uh, dulled by the overindulgence. And fasting is the very opposite. It, does, it, it brings back all of that uh, in increased strength. A Quaker once said to a neighbor that was moving in that had a lot of possessions, he said, Now, sir, if there's anything you think you need, come and talk to me, and I will teach you to do without it. Right? Fasting helps us to focus on permanent reality. Pleasure is fleeting. Pleasure is fleeting. Uh, Robert Burns, the famous Scottish poet, wrote it this way. But pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, its bloom is shed. Or like the stub that falls in the river, a moment white, then melts forever. And we sing a song in our hymnal by Adelaide Proctor that says that uh, she thanks the Lord for pain. Uh, she thanks the Lord that thorns remain in life so that our bliss may be our guide and not our chain. The pursuit of pleasure leads to bondage. And she said, I'm glad that life has a little bit of the difficult things, has a little bit of pain, has a little bit of sorrow. And by the way, she was sick all her life. She died at the age of 39. And she was thanking the Lord for the pain and for the sorrow that she had in her life because it kept her from taking pleasure to an extreme and getting herself into bondage. All right? True satisfaction. Put first things first. That'll help you to enjoy reality. Milt Rude worked for years and years in Spokane as a car salesman. He was very active with the Union Gospel Mission work with juvenile delinquents. Week by week, he patiently takes a word and pray with the young man in trouble. One week, Milt went into the hospital for exploratory surgery. The doctors found him was full of cancer. They sewed him up again, sent him home, and he died within a week. At the funeral, somebody noticed that it was interesting. No one ever asked, how many cars did he sell? So, <laughs> Jesus is uncompromising in this next passage which has to do with our treasure, seeking permanent riches. Worship has to do with our values, and that's, that's the thing that we really have to remember. Worship, the word worship, is actually a contraction. The old English word was worth. Worship. Now, the problem with much of Christianity is it focuses primarily on morals, and I don't want to de-emphasize that. Christians are honest. Christians are pure. Christians are are uh, truthful. Uh, yeah, all all of those things that we you look at in chapter five are very important in the Christian life. But if we're not careful, we basically define Christianity in terms of morals in ter instead of in terms of values. Okay? And worship has to do with values. Now, the difference between morals and values is morals has to do with what's right and what's wrong. And obviously, the Christian is always on the side of right. So, I don't want you to go away from here and say, I de-emphasize morals. Christians are moral people. But after you have attended to your morals, you still probably have not attended to the most important thing, which is your values. Values has to do with what the difference between what is most important and what is less important. It might be two good things. There's nothing wrong with uh, money. There's nothing wrong with possessions. But they are of secondary importance. All right? And so the Christian is concerned about having his number one value right. Now, we all say that our number one value is Jesus or the kingdom or something spiritual. That's our number one value. But if we're not careful, we give the lie to that. Go talk to your wife. 
Go talk to your employer. Go talk to your fellow employees. Go talk to your friends. What gets you the most excited? Because everyone has a number one passion, the thing that really pushes his button and gets him talking and gets him excited. What is that? For many people who say that Jesus and the kingdom are the most important things in their life, that's not really what happens when they are actually uh, giving expression to the most important thing in their life. Did you ever see someone sitting over here somewhere and there was a conversation and uh, he wasn't participating? You might have thought he just doesn't talk very much until you mention a certain subject and all of a sudden he becomes alive and he has stories to tell and he has passion and he's excited and you can hardly get him stopped. Maybe it's fishing, maybe it's hunting, maybe it's his business, maybe it's his vacation, maybe it's his whatever. Well, whatever that was, that was what he was worshiping. That was what had the most worth to him. No matter what he said, the thing that excited his passion was the thing that he, in fact, valued the most. And it's interesting to me that in that wonderful faith chapter of Hebrews 11, there's nothing said about those men's morals. The chapter that emphasizes that faith is important. What you see in that chapter is an emphasis on the values of those people. They fought for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Or this wonderful value statement of Moses. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. Something I would not want in the flesh. He considered that thing that we drink from to be more valuable than the treasures of Egypt, and Egypt had it all. That is a tremendous value statement. Of course, he demonstrated it by his actions. That the reproach of Christ was more important to him than all the treasures of Egypt that he could have had. So, could I say that your faith is measured by your values, by what you worship, that I could measure, you could measure my faith by what I get most excited about? I think that chapter suggests that, that the faith of those people was demonstrated not only by their morals, or not even primarily by their morals. It was demonstrated primarily by their values. Okay. So this is a very important subject. And that's why Jesus said, he didn't say, you shouldn't try to serve God in mammon. He said, you can't do it. It cannot be done. You cannot make mammon number one and Jesus number one, or the kingdom. You can't do it. It's impossible. Most Christians are trying hard to do both. But Jesus said you have to choose. Okay? And if you don't choose rightly, you will end up practicing heathenomics. Because he says, after all these things do the Gentiles see. That's what number one was them, obviously. But he said, in my kingdom, it won't be. Possessions will be not number one. And there'll be a stark difference between the world and the Christian in this area of his life. Now, we as Mennonites are very concerned about separation from the world, and we should be. And I'm 100% in favor of that. But it's interesting to me that the Bible only makes two statements about the Gentiles do this, but I want you to do this. And this is one of them. The only, only one of two statements where Jesus says, practically speaking, here will be a big difference between you and the world. The world will go after things, you will go after God. And you can't do both. You cannot serve both. The other one is where he says the Gentiles seek to exercise lordship over people. They dominate people. That's their concept of rule. But in my kingdom, the person who has the authority will be the person who serves. And it's interesting to me, I'm not sure the Mennonite church has done very well in either of I think there's been a tendency to violate both of those. That where Jesus said, this is where there's going to be a stark difference. And then we concentrate on other things, which are important, but I'm not sure they're as important as those two. Those two should show a marked contrast with the world. But we're talking now about possession. Right? Now, Jesus takes a little bit of a different approach in this chapter. Uh, up to this point, he basically just gave commands without much explanation or any explanation. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Give to him that asks of thee. Be perfect. Let not your left hand know what your right hand does. Pray to your father, which is, I mean, these are commands that he gives. 
But in this chapter, he gives some explanation because I think he knew that this would really be a difficult one for us. And so he wants us to understand why he's saying what he's saying. In fact, this is the longest discussion about the kingdom. Longer than any other discussion. That should tell us something about the importance that Jesus gave to this particular aspect of life. All right, so we need more than commands here, and Jesus gave us that. So we have two commands, and then we have a summary command. The first command is, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. There's actually, actually two injunctions there, but that's the first command. Don't lay up treasures on this earth. Don't do it. Lay up treasures in heaven, and we want to talk about what that means. And then he gives three insights. Because where your treasure is, there's where your heart's going to be. And if you don't do this right, the light of the eye will be affected. And no man can serve two masters. And so we'll talk about this. Command number two is don't take any thought. Or I think the term here is anxious thought. Don't let this make you anxious what you shall eat or what you shall drink. And we'll have some insights on that. Is not the life more than food? Which of you can, can uh, add to your height by, by worrying? Look to the birds. Look to the lilies. Are you not much better than they? And finally, each day is enough trouble for the sun. And then the summary command at the end is seek ye first. Now we're talking about values. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, he says if we lay up treasures on earth, we will be vulnerable to moth. I think I see some sarcasm there. How, do you, how many of you want to be mo- mo- vulnerable to moths? They're, they're the ones you, that are, that are, uh, are going to destroy your values. <laughs> the moths that fly around. Or rust. I think Jesus had a little bit of sarcasm here. You make yourself vulnerable to moths and rust. And the rust part is very, very important because James says, if you have anything with rust on it, it's going to testify against you in the end. Now, rust means it's something you're not using. It's that stuff you've accumulated you really didn't need. It's just there. And, of course, it gets rust on. And he says that rust will testify against you. So he's basically telling us that God is not so pleased if we have unused possessions, things we really don't need. Rust is slow oxidation. He says if you're into slow oxidation, you might face a horrible possibility of fast oxidation, which is fire. Okay. I often think of Monopoly. People get so excited playing Monopoly. But after you have won the game and you have the most money, it all has to go back in the box. My children will tell you I don't enjoy playing those games because they don't seem to have any reality to them. Uh, it's nice for fellowship to play games with people. Uh, but Monopoly is really sort of a bad one. We're, uh, we're teaching people to enjoy something that Jesus says don't do. Uh, I said that one time in a meeting in Sanford Shank when he designed the rules for the Monopoly game that would emphasize giving. The only problem was it wasn't any fun to play that. <laughs> but life is like Monopoly. It all goes back in the box. You will take none of it with you. You will take some things with you, but it won't be any of your possessions. It won't be any of your possessions. Now, we know that, and you all are sitting here agreeing with me. Well, we need to come to terms with that in our choices that we're making day by day. Why are we putting energy into things that are all going to go back in the box? Jesus is saying, put your energy into the things you can enjoy throughout all eternity. But we have to really think about that. In fact, look, look at Luke chapter 3. Let's turn to that one. Luke chapter 3. That's where we have John the Baptist preaching, and uh, the Pharisees, the tribes, came, and they wanted to be baptized. And he said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Verse 11, I want to see evidence. I want to see tangible evidence that you have repented. I won't baptize you until you give me tangible evidence that you have repented. Now, if somebody asks you, what is the best hard 
tangible evidence that a man has repented, what would you say? Some people would say, if he's crying, you can tell he's really sorrowful. Well, yeah, that's true. I'm not going to deny that. I don't think anybody would say what John says. John says, if you go down here to verse uh, verse 12, then came the publicans to be baptized, and he said to them, and, and said unto them, Master, what shall we do? Tell me some action that will prove to you that we're repentant and will qualify us for, your, for, for you to baptize us. And he said unto them, um, Where are we here? I'm sorry, back up. Uh, <laughs> Verse 10. I, I got too far down in the text. He had something to say to them, too. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? What would be the evidence that you need that we repented? And he said, He that has two coats, let him impart unto him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Really? That the evidence that John was looking for is that you get rid of your excess and give them to the people who don't have That was John's evidence for repentance. I'm not going to ask the readers here whether they require that for people they baptize, but they might think about it. Because when Zacchaeus came to Jesus, <coughs> Jesus had a long talk with Zacchaeus, we don't know what he said. But at the end, Zacchaeus said, if I've given more, if I've taken anything more than I should have taken, I'm going to restore fourfold. I'm going to give away half of my possessions before I do that. I'm not sure how much he had left after that. And Jesus didn't say, well, now, say, Chris, you're getting the cart before the horse. Uh, that might be the fruit of repentance, but you need to be sorrowful for your sins, and you need to get converted, and then maybe then you should do that. No, Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. This is an important subject. Because before we're converted, it's all about me. I told you that sin is selfishness. I told, I said that to these meetings. That's, that's the synonym for sin. Selfishness. And before we're converted, we are selfish. And it's all about me. And it's all about everything coming my way. Conversion means self has been put on the cross, Christ has been put on the throne, and everything starts going the other way. It all starts going the other way. And Jesus saw that with Zacchaeus, and he said, here is evidence that Zacchaeus is repentant. Today of salvation comes in the south. There has been this major change from selfishness to generosity. Okay? I'm just trying to show you what the scripture actually says about this. And, and before we go any further, I want you to remember what Jesus said about the end, Matthew 25. When we get to the judgment, he's not going to say, Were you born again? He's not going to say many things that we talk about. All he's going to say is, Did you close the naked? Did you feed the hungry? Did you visit the people who were needed your help and your encouragement? Did others dominate your life? What about conversion? Basically, what he's saying is that's the evidence that you were born again. If that evidence is not there, you're going to be in trouble. He says. I, I want to show you that all of Christ, all of true spirituality is based on this issue. And that's what I want to have ringing, not just in your ears, but mine. I tell people, I can leave the liquor in the store. I can leave the cigarettes in the store. I can leave the worldly clothing in the store. I can leave the expensive car at the uh, dealer. But I have to carry this stuff around. I can't leave it. I have bills to pay. I have a family to feed. And that's why this is such an issue, because if you remember I had that cross there and said in every decision, we have to decide whether it's going to be our way or Christ's way, I have to do this with this all the time, and so do you. And I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself with you. This is a major issue, and I'm trying to stir up the reality that Jesus is talking about here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, Colossians 3, 5 says, Along with fornication and uncleanness, don't let covetousness be named among you once. We don't want ever to have any fornication among Christians. We don't ever want to have any idolatry among Christians or uncleanness. 
you ever hear of anybody who was disciplined because he was covetous? And he says, don't let that once be named among you. Don't let the world ever be able to say, this person is covetous. Don't let that ever be anything. Don't let that ever happen. It should be as, it should be as important to us as fornication and idolatry that we don't want it ever to happen. But Jesus did not say it was wrong to lay up treasure. He said we're supposed to lay up treasure in heaven. <laughs> so this desire to accumulate is a God-given desire. I told you the other night that all of our desires are God-given desires, our desire to rule. He wants us to have an influence in this world. He wants us to be the salt of the earth. He wants us to be the light of the world. That desire to have an influence. It's a God-given desire, but then the devil perverts it, makes it selfish, and we want to dominate people. Well, the same thing is true here. We have a desire to accumulate treasure. That's a God-given desire. But we're to make sure where we accumulate it. It's not to be on this earth. It's not to be things. He says, lay up treasure in heaven. And heaven is a tremendous thing. It has the ultimate security. It's the safest place to put things. How do we write out heavenly deposit tickets? Well, to whom did Jesus say, Sell that you have and give alms, then you shall have reward in heaven? You're all going to say the rich young ruler. He did say that to the rich young ruler. But he didn't say that only to the rich young ruler. That's what we like to believe. We like to believe he said that only to the rich young ruler because he had a special problem, which of course we don't have. But that's not true. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. <laughs> he did say that to the rich young ruler. But he didn't say it only to the rich young ruler. Luke 12, verse 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How do you get it? Sell that you have and give all. Provide yourselves bags with wax not old, and treasure in the heaven that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he's telling us all, sell what you have. I think what he's saying is sell the extra. Get rid of the extra and lay up treasure in heaven. <coughs> well, Jesus uh, allows no alternative here. He says that to all of us. The story is told of a man who died and went to heaven, and he was excited about his mansion in heaven. And so he asked a friend that was there, who he saw had a huge mansion in heaven. It's a sort of ridiculous mansion in the story, but I think that's the truth. And he got all excited. He wanted to see his mansion. So he said to the man, would you show me where my mansion is? You know where it is. Oh, yeah, he said, I know where your mansion is. Would you take me to So they went down through the streets, and they finally got out into the wicked of heaven. <laughs> And after a while, they came on this little chicken coop. He said, that's your mansion. What? Well, this mansion is, is, is built by the things you send ahead, and that's all you send. That's your mansion. My Uncle John, who's not living anymore, lived in Philadelphia. He was a multimillionaire. And we went to visit him, and he took us all around in his Lincoln Continental and uh, really entertained us well. And uh, he knew what I believed, but after a while, I think he was a little self-conscious. And he said, John, Johnny, he called me Johnny. We can't take it with us. I said, Uncle John, you can take every penny of it with you if you send it ahead by giving it away. But that's a common thing. We can't take it with us. We can. We can take every penny of it with us. And if we really understood this, you know, people who understand investment, by the way, giving is not an expense. It's not like the telephone bill and the electric bill. You give it away and it's gone, you'll never see it. No, no, no. It's not an expense. It's an investment. We will see that money again. We will see those things again and enjoy them through all eternity. Now, people who wanted to invest in material things, especially when interest was better than it is now, they would drive an old car, they would wear shabby clothes, they would live in a simple house, and they put every penny into that investment because they knew it would increase in value. And they show us how you live if you believe in investments. Well, if we really believe in this, 
we would make sure we put every penny we could possibly spare into this investment. I'm just trying to challenge you all. I mean, this is, I have to decide myself over and over again, do I need this? Is this too much? Could I manage to do with less and give more? I mean, I have to, I have to make that decision all the time. And I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get you to that way of thinking. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't give a bunch of extra stuff. Use that extra to lay up treasures in heaven. Okay? Cast thy bread upon the waters. You know, you put bread in the water for some slugs or something. If they don't eat it, it soon dissolves and goes away. No, no. That's not the way it is with heavenly treasures. Cast your bread upon the waters and you shall find it after many days. That's Old Testament. Jesus insists on this, and he illustrates it with my favorite parable. Would you turn to it? You're in the book, the book of Luke. Would you turn to Luke 16? Somebody has said that Jesus said more about this subject. Not only is this the longest passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he said more about this subject than any other subject. They say one third of Jesus' teaching has something to do with money. Because he didn't want us to get to the end. <laughs> and face the disappointment. You know, he told us what the Bible test is going to be. You know, I was a teacher one time, and suppose I just said, look, I'd like for all my students to make an A-plus on the final test. I'm going to give them a copy of the test, and I'm also going to give them the answers. Well, that's what Jesus did with Matthew 25. He gave us the final test, and he gave us the answers. Now, it would be stupid if my students would just take that home and ignore it and pursue whatever. They would have been wise if they'd have taken that and then memorized every one of the answers and gotten it all right on the test. Well, God wants us to get it all right on the test at the end, and so He says so much about this. One third of Jesus' teachings, they say. They say, besides the subject of the kingdom of God, there's more on this subject than any other subject in the Bible, including prayer. Luke 16, let's read this. And he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. Now, a steward is someone who manages stuff that doesn't belong to him, belongs to someone else. He was accused of him that he wasted his goods. He didn't, he wasn't a good steward. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee, given account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward, I'm going to fire you. But I'm going to give you a chance to speak for yourself. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship, I cannot dig. I think he was lazy. And to beg I am ashamed. So how am I going to survive? I'm resolved how I'm going to do this. So that when I put out of the stewardship, some people will take care of me. So they called every one of his lords debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou my lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. So he's giving half of it away. He was a bad steward, by the way. He's still doing it. <laughs> he's giving away his lord's money. Uh, that he should have done to benefit himself. That's what a bad steward does. He mismanages somebody else's stuff to benefit himself, and this guy's still doing it, okay? Then he said to another, and how much will it sell? And he said, a hundred measures a week. And he said unto him, take that bill and write four scores. So he's going to give away 20 of, of his measures a week. He's making friends. And then Jesus says, the Lord, not God, not Jesus, but this earthly ruler, Commends the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Well, that's unusual. You'd have thought he'd have really been angry with this guy, and he probably was. But he says, the guy's a scoundrel to be sure, but he's a wise one. For the children of this world, in their generation, are wiser than the children of light. They know the value of giving things away. They know they can benefit by giving things away, not keeping it for themselves. And I say unto you, make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you in everlasting habitation. Now let some theologians tell you what that probably means. And then he says, it is faithful, he that is faithful in that which is least, which is the unrighteous mammon, in God's eyes, it has relatively no value or very little value. I mean, that's just not important to God. But he gives it to us to see what we do with something that has almost no value to decide whether he's going to give us something that has value. It's a test. This stuff is a test. Will this person be a good steward or will he waste this stuff 
It belongs to me, not to him. So I can decide whether I want to give him some things I have that really have value. And I say unto you, make yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. He makes it clear this stuff is not, it's not, it's the mammon of unrighteousness. That when you fail, they may receive you in everlasting habitation. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is, what he's saying is, he that is faithful in this stuff that doesn't have much value will be, will be trustworthy if I give him really valuable things. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. And therefore, ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon. Who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot, not you must not, you cannot serve God in them. So God is looking, and he's saying, what are you doing with this stuff? And I will determine from that whether I'm going to give you things of value. Now I'm going to use John Wesley as an example. John Wesley could have been a wealthy man. He wrote quite a number of books, and in the sale of his books, they say in today's money, he would have earned about $140,000 a year. That's not a whole lot of money, but it's far more money than I see in a year. But he would have earned a lot of money. In today's money, he, he, he claimed a salary and gave all the rest away. His salary, they say in today's money, would have been about $14,000. As, as much as I disagree with Wesley, with his infant baptism in the Church of England, and probably he didn't insist on non-resistance, of course, for him to fail. There were things about Wesley that I, I, I'm sorry, he, he could have done some better. But I think on just this one principle, God said, here's a man who has proven himself a good steward with this stuff. And I think that is the explanation for John Wesley's ministry. Uh, that's just my personal evaluation. I mean, God just lavished gifts upon this man and wonderful results to his ministry, far beyond almost anything else in history. And if you read his diary, he worried on, over whether he should drink tea, whether it, was, whether it was really important for him to drink tea or whether that was a waste of his money that he could have given to the poor. That's the kind of stuff you read in his diary. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, that the kingdom of God is preached, and people strive to get into it in their own way. They press and say, I'm going to be part of this kingdom, and I'm going to do it my way. In Luke 16, going on, he says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there's not a hint there that this man was immoral. There's only one reason why he ended up the way he did. Brother, in your lifetime you had some good things, this man had his evil thing. And now you are tormented and he is blessed. Just that's, that's all. Not a hint that he did anything else wrong. We need to meditate on these things, folks, so that we can go out tomorrow morning and begin to get first things first. So, what are the insights? Let's do this quickly. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasure here simply means cost deposit. Where's your power of stuff? Where you focus your time and your resources. Let your checkbook and your schedule speak. Where have you focused your time and your resources? The law is your heart will follow your treasure. Now we read it backwards. We wave our hand over a huge amount of treasure and say, well, but our heart isn't here. I have an uncle who died and he died. And he was a dear uncle. And I'm not saying his name. You wouldn't know him anyway, but I'm not trying to focus on who he was. But I had an old... Pontiac station wagon with rust on the hood and peeling uh, wood grain. I bought it for $700, I think, and that's what I drove. And my uncles were all wealthy, and they all thought I was. They liked me. They really did like me, but they, they made this snide remarks about the way I lived. And so I saw my uncle working in the graveyard of the church where I used to go. And so I thought, well, I don't see, see uncle very often, so I wheeled in there and parked right behind his truck. And opened the window and said, Hi, Uncle. And the first thing he said, Johnny, I guess you see I bought a new Ford truck. I hadn't said a word about his truck. Yes, it was pretty right in front of me. And then he said, I want you to know that truck doesn't mean anything to me. It's only transportation. Oh, okay. All right. But well, why did he say that? 
you hear I bought a new Cadillac? Yes, I said, I know, I heard that. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me either. It's only transportation. See, this is the game we play. That we have the stuff, but it doesn't mean anything to us. It has no value to us. And Jesus said, no, that's not true. Show me that stuff, and I'll show you where your heart is. Your heart follows your treasure. If you want to change your heart, change your treasure. Instead of putting it in all that um, stuff, go down to the city. Pour your heart into some people who really have need. Serve in the food kitchen. Make some investment in the lives of other people and watch. That's what you'll start talking about. That's what, that will be your treasure. That will become the important thing. That will become the number one value of your life. So that's the first thing Jesus said. Don't wave your hand over six farms or whatever you have and say, well, I have all this stuff, like my uncle said, but it doesn't mean anything to me. That is not true. Jesus said that's not true. Where your stuff is, there's where your heart's going to be. Insight number two, the light of the body is the eye. If your eye be single, your body will be full of light. A single eye focuses on one thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It has its focus on that as the number one thing. And it's not just words. It's what you do. It's what people see. It's what people hear. It's the passion you express. Otherwise, you have double vision. You have two senses. You're focusing on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of me. You're trying to do both. He says, don't have an evil eye. Well, Deuteronomy 15, 9 says, if when the year of Jubilee is coming up, you don't help your poor brother because you know you'd have to give it all back at the year of Jubilee, that's an evil eye. Proverbs 20, 22 says, he that hastens to be rich, has an evil eye. Versus this one, Proverbs 22, 9, he that has a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth his bread to the poor. Second Peter 1, verse 9 says, The blind cannot see afar off. Did you know that spiritual blindness is not that you can't see anything? It's that you've allowed the short range stuff that's right in front of your nose to obliterate the long range view. That's spiritual blindness. And to see wrongly is worse than not seeing at all. I mean, if I'm going down the road and all of a sudden I lose my sight, I'm going to cautiously get over on the shoulder and stop. But if my eye says that the ditch is the road and the road is the ditch, I'm in real trouble. So blindness is not not being able to see at all. It's, it's seeing wrongly. Okay? <clears throat> we have the person who has his eye on material things, I've noticed, is very susceptible to reach people. We had a business in our community that went bankrupt. But before they went bankrupt, they went around trying to get money from people, hoping to just put a little more money into this business. They'll finally turn it around and be able to pay everybody the exorbitant interest that they had promised. They, they were promising the interest that was far above the present interest rate. And it's amazing to me, I keep hearing the people who got sucked into that. They're people who had their mind, they had their focus at the wrong place, and they lost it all. Failure to obey Christ about wealth focuses us on prescribing for many problems. What kind of car would a boy drive if he gave away all his extra wealth? What kind of house would you build if you gave away all your extra wealth? If you really didn't want to build anything more than really what you need, now all of us had it with a little more than we needed, I'm going to admit that. But, but if you really did try to just build a house that left your need, what kind of house would it be? Insight number three, you cannot serve God in mammon. Whatever you treasure, you will in fact be worshiping. I want you to remember that. Worship has to do with value. Whatever is your number one value, that is in fact what you're worshiping. And whatever you worship, you will serve. Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Whatever you worship, whatever is number one, will, you will serve that. That's where you will put all of your, that's where you will put your best in uh, time and, and energy. All right? You cannot serve two contradicting masters at one time. One says accumulate possessions. The other says distribute them. Do you hear me? 
The one master says accumulated, the other one says distributed. The one says a big salary, savings, insurance, increasing capital, having high ratings. The other says that lavish generosity, unselfishness, love, and humility are the number one priorities in life. Okay? We must choose. The lie is that we can have both. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says you cannot do it. God and mammon are mutually exclusive, and the choice affects our relationship with God. Command number two is take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink. So then how, shall, how then shall we live? How, how do we uh, view all of this and make the right decision? Well, it's interesting. Jesus goes on to answer that. Uh, and it's almost as if he's a little bit perplexed that it would even be a problem. So let's look at what he says in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Quickly, I'll try to do this quickly in closing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat than the body than raiment. Basically, what he's saying is, look at your life. Now, I'm a copy editor of Medical Journal, and the body is a million miracles. And God made this body, this very complicated organism. Is it harder for him to make the food, the beans, to keep it alive? Which is the harder? So make this organism to begin with, or to make what it would take to keep it going. How many things to make the organism to begin with is what's far more difficult thing for God to do? Raise your hands. But we worry about the beans. Maybe God can't provide the beans. He provides this, but he can't provide the beans. He doesn't know how to make plants uh, to feed us. That's what he's saying. Isn't the life more than what it takes to sustain it? That's common sense. If God created this and, and I'm living to his glory, certainly he knows how to keep this going. <laughs> I mean, I said Jesus sort of resisting perplexity here. This is pretty obvious. A second obvious observation. Verse 26. Behold the fowls of the earth, where they sow not neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than them? Animals don't accumulate for their feet to eat, uh, or at least the ones he mentions. He mentions the fowls of the earth. Now, squirrels do, but I, 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 and uh, ants do. But where is their future? It's on this earth. We're to do the same thing, but our future is not on this earth. Okay? And he says, God takes care of them. The, the birds, the work they do has almost nothing. It has, in fact, it has nothing to do with uh, providing for their needs, their physical needs. I mean, they fly around it. They, they sing their little songs and they build their nests and lay their eggs and they hatch them. And then they go out each day and look for worms. And he says, God makes sure that they live up until the time when their existence is finished. Aren't you better than they are? We're rational. We can work purposefully. We're actually better than them. We can actually cooperate with God in supplying our needs. They don't. So he says, why are you worried about this? Number three, verse 27. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Now, I know there are people sitting here who wish they weren't as tall as they are, and there are people sitting here who wish they weren't as short as they are. Well, I have an assignment for you. Go home today, stand in front of a mirror, and worry as hard as you can worry for a half hour, and then measure yourself again and see what you accomplish. You can't worry yourself taller or shorter. So what he's saying is, you can't, by worry, eliminate the inevitable. Okay? If you can do something about it, do something about it. But if you can't do anything about it, don't worry. What, what, it, won't, it won't accomplish anything. Verse 28. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God said, clothe the grass of the field, which today is as Mars cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you of little faith. Therefore, 
take no thought, say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? I also think when I cut the lawn, you know, God knows when I'm going to cut that grass. It would seem like he would say, well, we don't have to supply the nutrients for that grass. In a couple of days, it's going to be cut. But he supplies the nutrients for that grass right up until Michael and he cuts it off. And that's what he's saying. God will supply your needs right up to the end of your life. He promised that. That's a promise he makes. If we do the summary command, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, we all know that everybody wants to have a government job. Why do they want to have a government job? Because it pays good, and it has a good retirement plan. Well, do you think God's government is inferior to the governments of this world, that he would care less about our pay and our future? If governments of the world take care of people's needs and give them a good retirement plan, certainly the God of the universe, the people who are part of his kingdom, which is the most important thing to him on this earth, are going to be taken care of and are going to have a good retirement plan. And then he finally says, Take no thought, therefore, no anxious thought for tomorrow, for the mark that takes thought of things for itself, but which none today is the evil thereof. God gives grace for each day. So if you bring tomorrow into today, you'll have to do it without any grace. You'll have to do it without God helping you at all. Because tomorrow, he says, you will have all the grace you need tomorrow. So just take care of the things today and trust God that He will provide what you need for tomorrow. And I'm talking about people who work. The Bible says we're to work. But it's interesting, the motive He gives us for work. Work so you have to give. Work so that you can meet your own needs. And, 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 and your real goal in working is to have enough left over to lay up treasures in heaven. How do we seek the kingdom? How does it work? Well, Jesus pictured a new society in Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. He said, if, if you, well, let's turn to that. Mark, let's, in fact, some, you read that, didn't you, brother? You read Mark chapter 10. We've given, we've given everything, they said. And Jesus said, any person who's done that will receive a hundredfold more in this life and the life to come. What was Jesus talking about? Well, he pictured a new society where people share. So that it's not just my possession. I own everything that belongs to you, or I have access to everything that belongs to you, and you have every access to everything that belongs to me. That's the society that Jesus pictured. And we see it in Acts 2 and chapter 4. But when Mennonites get to those chapters, they explain them all away. And they say, well, that was you know, for some special needs in Jerusalem. And, well, later on, we see something else. And blah, 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 blah. The Anabaptists took it very seriously. They took very seriously Acts 2 and Acts 4. I think we have to get over the fact that if we take those seriously, we'll all be Hutterites. Well, that's just one way of doing it. The, the Russian Mennonites had the village model, where they all lived in a small village, and uh, they didn't share everything like they should have, of course. But that, that's another possibility. I think we should look at those chapters and say, what can we do to make that a reality among us? How can we, how can we function as a brotherhood where what you have really is for me, and what I have really is for you. And none of us consider anything that we own our own. The Anabaptists were really serious about that. They did believe in community of goods. I'll give you the principle that James Thayer, Dr. James Thayer, you can look up his writings. He spent his whole life studying the economics of the early Anabaptists. He said there were three principles that he lived by. Number one, no accumulation of wealth. Number two, no investments with interest. They believe that the interest was money that you're going to use that you didn't really have to sweat to get. Making money with money. They had lived under those lords on the top of the hill where everything went to them, and they were very sensitive to that injustice. They said a person's sustenance should be with the work of his own hand. And number three, they believe in equality through theory. They really were trying to create equality. Now, none of this will ever be perfect, but I'll just remind you of these three principles they live by, and you can decide whether they're biblical. No accumulation of wealth, I think we had it in today's lesson. No investments. 
They would have imposed, they would have imposed investments where you're making money with money. And as a purpose to have equality to share. So this is Jesus' teaching on putting first things first. I think fasting helps us to do that, to keep our values spiritual rather than material. And I think Jesus' teaching is a great challenge in that respect. So, let's start here for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, help us to really believe what you taught. That if we do what you said, we can trust you to take care of us. And I pray help this little community get excited about demonstrating that aspect of the kingdom. That the world looking on will see here there are no rich people and there are no poor people. And these people are known to have all their wealth available to everybody. Oh God, what a powerful witness that would be in a world that values material things and sees this as a stark contrast to their whole mentality. Just help this community to begin thinking in practical ways how they can put this to 